So I would like to say, Bienvenidos días y bienvenidos a la capilla de la hora de la mañana. Anybody? Somebody took some Spanish, right? Okay, how about this one? Guten Morgen und willkommen in der Morning Hour Chapel. Good morning and welcome to Morning Hour Chapel. Today is Pentecost Sunday. This is the day when God fulfilled his Old Testament promise from the book of Joel, uh, chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, Jesus instructs his disciples to stay in Jerusalem for a short time so that they may receive this spirit that God told us about in the book of Joel. And he says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in Acts chapter 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see this promise fulfilled in the book of Acts chapter 2. And if you want to read along in your Bibles, you can. We'll have the verses up on the slides as well, hopefully. But Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, they being the 120 disciples of Jesus Christ, those people who Jesus told, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, that sound of that mighty rushing wind, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Galileans were not known for being people of education. Galileans were not known for being people of travel. Now, Galilee was a place where uh, people would travel to and from. It was kind of a central port, a central place where people could come 
to do some trade. But the Galileans themselves only picked up enough of different languages to be able to set a price or uh, make a deal for one of those trades. They didn't really learn language. So all of these people that were in Jerusalem are just shocked to hear all of these people speaking in their languages and not just about trade or about fishing or about anything like that. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. They're crazy. That's kind of how the world sees us sometimes, isn't it? Drunk, crazy. We don't know what we're talking about. We're not talking normally. We're not talking wisely. That's how we get seen by the world. But Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now, Peter is standing up and he is talking to thousands and thousands, possibly million or more people in Jerusalem. He is speaking in his own language. 119 other people are translating at the same time. It's like the UN. Have you ever seen a video of the UN where they're all shouting back and forth and all of the, you see the, the video with the translators and they've all got the thing to their ear and they're speaking as quickly as they can to tell the people who are from all of the different countries, all the different delegates, this, this is what's being said, this is what's being said. This is the same thing. Peter is talking. Peter is giving the sermon and 119 other people are providing translation in this great open area in Jerusalem. And Peter goes on, he says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes that passage that we saw at the very beginning here. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall see dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And he goes on and he tells them the rest of that passage talking about the great and mighty day of the Lord and he finishes up by saying and it shall come to pass it will happen that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved the Holy Spirit baptizes the disciples, and they receive power to speak in the languages of every person who was in Jerusalem from all over the world. 
They're able to speak their language, to understand so that they can preach the gospel to them. This is all happening on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a holy feast that honored the wheat harvest. It happened 50 days after Passover. So penta meaning five or 50. Pentecost was this day, 50 days later. And there were likely up to a million people in Jerusalem that day. It's possible. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we can guess a holy feast like that would have a lot of people. Over the past several weeks, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit who has been poured out to the disciples, who's been poured out to all flesh. We've been talking about how he restores our souls when we repent of our sins, come to faith in Jesus Christ, and determine to live as Christ has taught us. But a lot of people don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Who is the Holy Spirit? Why do Christians rely on him for restoration? Why do we rely on him? Why do we put our faith in the Holy Spirit? And every time we do something here at the church, when we're having a board meeting, when we're having a deacon meeting, we ask the Holy Spirit to guide us, to tell us what we are supposed to be doing. Why do we do that? Well, this morning, we're going to answer these questions by taking a little journey through the Bible. And the Holy Spirit first shows up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit is this Spirit of God. He is the third person of the Trinity of God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. And we see him right there at the beginning, before creation has happened, hovering over the waters. The, the, the word there for hovering means trembling. Have you ever been waiting for something? You've been waiting to, to, to start something. Maybe you're a racer and you're, you're there at the, at the starting line and every muscle is tensed and you're ready to get started. Or maybe you're getting ready to take a test or a final and you're sitting there waiting for that uh, teacher to say, okay, open your books, even though you really don't want to do it. But just this trembling, this anticipation, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. And just as John 1 tells us about Jesus, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All three persons of the Trinity we see are there at the beginning of creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that again in just a minute. Because there's another place where we specifically see the entire Trinity in one place all three persons of God. But in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The shoot from the stump of Jesse. He's talking about the Messiah here. And a branch from his shoot shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is what is going to happen when Jesus comes 
to earth. When the Messiah arrives, he's going to be filled with God's spirit. He's going to be filled with wisdom and knowledge and counsel and might and all of these things. And we see in Matthew 3, verses 16 to 17, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the second time we see all three persons of the Holy Spirit mentioned in one place at one time. Makes us kind of think about how important baptism is to God. If God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all there at one time, and we can hear, and we can see, and we can experience all three persons of the Holy Spirit at one time, baptism must be at least slightly important. I would say maybe essential. In the Isaiah passage, we see several descriptors used for the spirit. He is a spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge. And we learn that the Holy Spirit knows all things and has wisdom and understanding of all things. And this is why Jesus told his disciples, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, Jesus knows that being human, his time was finite. Jesus knew that he could not possibly teach who God is to his disciples in three short years of ministry. That's why he sends God's spirit to teach us all things and to help us to remember those things that Christ did say while he was on earth. And the last part of this Isaiah passage says that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And what does that mean, the fear of the Lord? Does it mean like many people believe that we should walk around afraid that God is looking over our shoulder every second of the day waiting for us to screw up so that he can throw lightning bolts at us or smite us into dust. That's what a lot of people think is how we fear the Lord, that God wants us to be afraid of him. But that's not what fearing the Lord means. To fear the Lord means that we act with a sense of reverence and awe at all of the things that God has done, all of the things he is doing, and all of the things that are going to happen that he's going to do. This is one of those places where that word that I hate, awesome, actually applies. Pizza is not awesome, but God is awesome. And that is the fear of the Lord, knowing, recognizing that God is awesome. He is all-powerful, yes. 
but he is also all grace. He is also all mercy. He is all love. When we stand in awe of who God is, the Bible tells us that we are fearing the Lord, and it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He is the spirit of knowledge, wisdom, counsel, might, and understanding. You want to be wise? Stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of his creation. You want to be wise? Go take a walk sometime and just notice all of the things that God has created. The plants, the animals, the people. And just stand in awe that God made everything. That's the beginning of wisdom. What else can we know about the Holy Spirit? I've said countless times over the past several weeks that the Holy Spirit is the restorer of our souls. And Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 27 suggests this is true. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is what happens at repentance. This is what happens when we accept Jesus' gift of his death and his resurrection and we ask for forgiveness. And we ask to be reconciled to God. Our heart of stone is removed and God gives us a heart of flesh. Heart of stone can't do anything. A heart of stone is dead. A heart of flesh is alive. God gives us life in the spirit. And when that happens, the spirit lives within us. He teaches us in wisdom, knowledge, understanding, how to walk in the way that is pleasing to God. Because if we're going to say, God, I want to be on your side, we need to know what that means. And the Holy Spirit will teach us. And just like learning anything else, this, this learning is, is a transformation. This learning is a restoration, and it's a long process. We don't ask forgiveness for our sins and then boom, God downloads his entire being into our minds for us to understand. Happens over a long period of time because I honestly think that if he did that, our brains would explode. So we take time and it takes us the rest of our natural lives. First Corinthians 3 says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When Moses 
was in the wilderness and he went up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God and he came back the people saw his face they saw the glory of God shining in it and they asked him to put on a veil they couldn't stand to look at Moses's face shining with the glory of God when we stand before God our faces will be unveiled we will behold all of God's glory and we are being transformed into the image of God from one degree to another as we behold that glory as we're being restored we're being transformed we're being made back into what God originally created us to be a true reflection of him And as we learn, as we're restored, as we're transformed, we might wonder, how, how do I know that it's happening? Right? Because sometimes change, if we, if we go day to day, change is not very noticeable. Anybody ever lose a good amount of weight? Nobody has ever lost. Okay. Uh, at one time, I actually was, was much uh, thinner than this. I was down to about 199 pounds when I was in the Army. And I hated it. But I could not see the transformation from day to day to day. Yeah, I could step on the scale. I could see, yeah, I'm, I'm losing. But I walk, look in the mirror, and I'm like, yeah, I don't see anything. I don't see any change. I don't see any transformation. And then eight weeks later, my parents come to visit at near the end of boot camp. And they look at me, and they didn't recognize me at first. The transformation was so incredible to them. I couldn't see it. And when we're transformed by the Holy Spirit sometimes, when we're in the day-to-day, -day, in the thick of things, we don't necessarily see the transformation happening. Even though somebody that comes and visits us after six months after we're saved looks at us and says, you're a new person. I've never known you to be like that before. What's happened? So this transformation, again, it happens slowly. And it happens noticeably. When we repent and God puts the Holy Spirit within us, if we don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit, which sometimes we do, but if we don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us that that transformation will be evident. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the Bible talks about fruit, what it is talking about is results. The results of the Spirit when the Spirit lives in us, this is what happens. Love, joy, peace, and so forth. And when we're being restored by the Spirit, we're learning how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we learn over time this kind of perfect love. And as we develop this perfect love, we will be full of joy. It's inevitable. Now, it's not to say we'll always be happy because happiness and joy are two different things. Happiness is an emotion and it comes and goes with the circumstances. Joy is a state of being regardless of our circumstances. 
regardless of whether we're on top, regardless of whether we're being trampled to the ground, we can have joy. And perfect love brings perfect joy to our state of being. And when our being is permeated with perfect love and perfect joy, that brings us peace. And the word peace here doesn't mean the absence of conflict like a lot of people think. This word here for peace means harmony in personal relationships. In Hebrew, the word is shalom. And it means an all-encompassing sense of rightness and contentment in all areas of our lives. The Holy Spirit teaches us to love perfectly, bringing us to a state of perfect joy, and that gives us a sense of perfect shalom, perfect harmony in our relationship with God and in our relationship with everybody else. Even the guy who cut you off on the highway coming to church this morning. Even with the coworker that is just a real pain. We can live in contentment and harmony with them because we are going to practice the love and the joy that the Holy Spirit teaches us. And when we live in perfect harmony with others and with God, we develop all of these other things, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. We can't help but seek out these things that help keep our relationships harmonious. That's what these things do. Patience helps us to stay at peace with people. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, all of these things foster the peace that we have in the Holy Spirit. These are the things that we show to other people. And they come from within as the Holy Spirit continues to teach us. And it's interesting. I, I think about people who are not Christians, and, and I talk to them sometimes, and uh, maybe even atheists, you know, things like that. And, and I hear this common statement from a lot of people. I can be a good person without God. I can, I can be a good person. I am a good person. I'm a good person, and I don't need God. Now, of course, that opens up a discussion about, you know, what's the definition of good? What's the definition of a good person? How do you know that you're a good person? And, of course, you hear a lot of different definitions. Well, I've never killed anybody, and I've never cheated on my wife, and I've never done this, and I've never done that. That makes me a good person. You ever hated anybody, though? That's not what a good person does. But we get all that into all those kinds of conversations. But my question, my question for these people is, without God, Without the teaching of the Holy Spirit, can you really experience perfect love, joy, peace, the things that lead to perfect patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? Because that's God's definition of a good person. The last fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. And I always wondered about self-control. Why is it listed last? Don't you think it should be listed like, I don't know, maybe second or third? 
Holy Spirit's going to teach me love, and then he's going to teach me how to control myself so that I can do all of these other things. Well, no, that's not exactly what it is. This is not, this is, this is kind of a progression, this list of the growth of the Christ follower. And I, I kind of thought this way a lot when I thought the fear of the Lord was lightning bolts and smiting into dust, right? Well, you got to teach me self-control, Holy Spirit, so God doesn't throw a lightning bolt at me when I screw up. But that's not the way it works. See, the Holy Spirit works within us, doing all of these things, developing all of these fruits of the Holy Spirit. Self-control, the last on the list, means controlling ourselves. In case you didn't know that was the definition of self-control. It is acting in a way that acknowledges our lives in the spirit and places our physical lives into subjection to our spiritual life. Because all the other fruit is internal. They're all the things that the Spirit teaches us. They're things that we determine in ourselves. We make a decision to be patient. We make a decision to be kind. We make a decision to be faithful. Self-control shows my patience, shows my goodness, my kindness. It is the external manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the ways that the Holy Spirit wants to help us to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We call these things spiritual disciplines, and we don't like that word discipline very much because it means that there's something expected of us. And I'm sorry to tell you, there is something expected of us. The Spirit will help us to gain knowledge and understanding and wisdom when we do these things so that we can bear spiritual fruit that leads to our restoration. And not just the restoration of our own spirits, but our restoration with the relationships that we have here on earth with our neighbors, and with our enemies. I hope you'll be able to join us. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending the Holy Spirit to us on that day of Pentecost, just 50 days after your Son was mercilessly crucified, beaten, killed. Just 50 days after that lack of mercy, you showed us great mercy. You showed us perfect love. You're allowing the Holy Spirit to live in each of us. Father, I ask that as we continue to strive for holiness, as we continue to strive for restoration, that you would help us to recognize the Holy Spirit within us, that you would take away all of the things that keep us from accepting the teaching and the knowledge and the understanding that the Holy Spirit gives us. Help us to bear fruit that shows people just how 
different we are because you live in us. Father, I pray for those who uh, are, are not with us today, who are traveling various places, keep them uh, in safety. Uh, we ask that you would uh, heal those who are in need of healing, bless those who are in need of blessing, and help us to be a blessing to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you leave here this morning, since the children got some homework, I'm going to give you a little bit of homework as well. I'd like to challenge you. Each day this week, read Psalm 119. See what it says about the Word of God and how the Spirit moves in our lives. And now may the blessings of God go with you. May the Spirit of God dwell in you. May you experience the perfect love and joy, mercy and grace that he provides. God bless you this week.